This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, are there too many satellites in space? John L. Crisidis, a space junk expert and professor in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at the University of New York, tells us why space junk is a problem that we don't even know how to solve. Throwback Thursday, flashback Friday, Ukraine's Independence Day was the 24th. 31 years ago, it was 1991, the birth of Ukraine as we know it today, also the GST, pop culture, and some toys for that year, plus are you okay with speeding tickets and more, all here on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with Tiny Dancer? Um... I think it's an incredible song. I like Rocket Man more, but Tiny Dancer is amazing. It's probably one of the best karaoke songs of all time, too. Right. I think it's amazing. Like, it's just yeah. it's one of the epic. 10 out of 10. Yeah, like 10 out of 10, like many of Velton John songs that are just perfect. I guess as a former karaoke host... I've heard so many bad versions of this song that those are all etched in my mind. And that's, in, that's fair. usually what I think of when I hear this song. And the other thing I think of is the misheard lyric, Hold Me Closer, Tony Danza. No. Oh, yeah. Yes. People yeah. actually would say, they would request Tiny Dancer and then say Tony Danza? Yeah, play Tony Danza. Really, eh? I'd say it as a joke to seem funny, but... Maybe, but still. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's one of Elton John's most famous songs. It was ranked 47 on the 2021 list of Rolling Stone's greatest songs of all time, which is, I mean, debatable, but it belongs anywhere in that top 50 as far as I'm concerned. Um, now, here's the reason why this is really kind of cool. And the question is, are you going to like it? Millions of copies sold of Tiny Dancer. Um, but what about a new version of Tiny Dancer? This is the version that just came out like just released. That's why we're doing it right now. Elton John is a new version of Tiny Dancer that officially comes out today on Friday with Britney Spears. It's a new version of Tiny Dancer. We got a sneak peek of it yesterday from a party, release party, where they were playing the song and Elton John started singing along. <laughs> So this is going to be the first new song for Britney Spears in six years. And on the title, it is Elton John first, Britney Spears second. Um, it's got, you know, kind of a little poppy beat. It's kind of dancey. It's very much like the now version of Cold Heart that was released a little over a year ago. So the Cold Heart was a what we played here quite often. BK, you like that one. We play that quite a bit. It's a great song. So here it is. A little. We want to know, is do you like it? Uh, Hold Me Closer is what it's called. Britney Spears along with Elton John. Um, it's a sample of Tiny Dancer. We're not going to play the whole thing right now, but I want to we'll kind of skip through some bits of it. You tell me if you like it. Okay. Let it get started. Yeah. All right, so Britney Spears. Britney Spearsy. Decent, yeah. like it so far. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna skip it ahead here just a smidge. Yep. And uh, this is probably where the hook's gonna start. I tell you, man. Like it'll be, a, it might not be number one for the year, but that's a, that's a hit. It's. I, I think know. it's. I, I think there, no. There's no original ideas ahead, anymore. There's just no original ideas. Why are we retreading oh. old ground? This is like I've heard this oh, yeah. song. I've heard this beat but what would you a million rather, times. Would you I'd rather, rather have an original more, idea? 
I agree with you, but would you rather have more crappy songs that are cookie cutter that are the same old thing over and over again, or at least hear something that's decent added into the cookie cutter? I would take the decent added in the cookie cutter. I guess I just think this is just a it's just a money making publicity thing. Mm-hmm. It is a money making song. This is going to be bumping in like every gay bar on the planet. Like this is like mm-hmm. that kind of very super high energy. And I mean that in the best way possible. Like I'm looking forward to dancing. To I this think song. it's going to be in all uh, the bars. I will say <laughs> the only thing is that Britney's vocal sound like too processed from just that listen. Like just too. She always does though. I, yeah, always, but I, 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 I find that a little jarring. But all in all, I think I it's a good be beat. The one that tells you, Ryan, but Britney Spears is not really a great singer. Like, just so you know, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> okay, let's not be toxic. <laughs> ah, very She puts good. on one hell of a show, but I, I just, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, when you, she's no Christina Aguilera, let's put it that way, when it comes to singing talent from that era. Okay, I say thumbs up. I think it's a winner. I agree the principle with BK that it's, um, you know, it would be nice to hear some songs, but they are retreading in a big way. BK, can you thumbs up or you still thumbs down even though the principle? Uh, thumb, one thumb down and one thumb sideways. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good. What about you, right? I, I think the sideways, kind of like the Roman, you know, like the gladiator. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's not horrible. It's fine in the club. It'll be good. But also, I think Elton John is 75. He's on his retirement tour right now. We don't need new music from yeah. Elton John. So if he wants to party and have some fun with artists that can still make great music and remix some of his songs, I think he has every right to do that. And his, catalog, his catalog of music is near perfect. So... I'm okay with that. Isn't he on like his like fifth retirement tour at this point? Hasn't he mm-hmm. well, tried it's been to do this a couple times? Two years on. It's uh, mm-hmm. and I'm actually going to be in Vegas when he's in there for his last show, and I'm going to try to sneak away from my hotel room to go see Elton John in Vegas for the last time ever. So, like, fingers crossed, man. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Well, he can successfully wear ten thousand dollar pajamas in public and look great. So. When you're in your sure. 80s and that's how great you look, I think that that's pretty awesome. So, and then he still sings like, like, well. like amazing, right? Yeah. All right, there it is. Britney Spears and Elton John with Hold Me Closer, which is a sampled rip of his own song of Tiny Dancer. You're going to hear it on the radio. It's going to be all weekend this weekend. Everywhere you go, it's going to be there. Are you okay with speeding tickets? Mm, I've only I've never gotten one because I don't drive but Hmm. but I've been in the car with someone when they got a speeding ticket and I felt guilty because I was getting a ride home and he went yeah I can make it through the light and he got a speeding ticket so I felt like it was kind of my fault but I I didn't pay for it Hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't like this ambiguity around the speed limit you know, you're on the QEW in Toronto and they're like, you can go 20 over. They won't pull you over. Well, then why is it's like it's like credit limits, too. You can always go past them. I don't understand if it's the limit. It should be the limit. If you're going 101 on the QEW, should that not entail a ticket? Hmm. It's a very valid point. At least a failure to maintain your vehicle. Your speedometer is wrong. I think speeding tickets are very important in two particular places construction zones when workers are present and there are actually things going on like road signs because things need to be protected not like it is in alberta where i live where there is slow down to 50 from 110 and there is nothing there nobody working it's a long weekend and everybody slams on the brake and becomes wildly dangerous because someone forgot to took the signs down take the signs down that should be a ticket for the company just saying school zones would be the other one so mm-hmm. I those ones, I think it's if you get a speeding ticket in a school zone, I think your punishment should be being a crossing guard. And I think that if you get a speeding ticket in a construction zone, your punishment should be being a stop sign flag person in a construction zone. You will learn very quickly what it's like to work on the side of a highway. But I kind of agree with BK that, I mean, I always go 10 over, always. 
Uh, on the highway, that is. Well, it's the, it's the ambiguity. Everyone says you can go 10 over. They won't do anything, mm. and they won't. And then it's I like, go 10% actually is my number. So it's like the speed recommendation. It shouldn't really be a limit. It should just be the right. My buddy Rich always goes 20%. His number is 20%. He's like, I've never had a ticket 20% over all the time. So I don't know. A North Vancouver woman had to deal with some very unexpected charges from her car rental company. Um, driving is one thing. Speeding tickets is one. But how far do you go and how fast does it get you there? Giovanna Boniface picked up a Yukon Denali from Avis Car Rental at Toronto's Pearson International Airport on August 13th. Can we talk about how much it costs to rent a Yukon Denali per day? (laughs) I imagine quite a bit. Yeah. She drove it to Kitchener to help her daughter get uh, moved back in from university and then returned the vehicle to Avis at the airport three days later. Round trip from Pearson to Kitchener plus the driving around town, 170 kilometers. Pretty standard rental, right? Well, not according to Avis. She was waiting to board her flight and she saw the receipt come in because she dropped off the car, the quick drop off, right? The receipt came in for the car rental that she had driven 36,482 kilometers <laughs> in 68 hours, along with a charge of $8,079.76. I thought it was unlimited kilometers, first of all, so that's weird. So the Daily Hive did some math for us here. Now, if Giovanna skipped all the stops and washroom breaks, didn't go through the drive through She'd have to maintain a speed of 536.5 kilometers per hour or go the distance, uh, hour or to go to the distance. Uh, that doesn't make sense. 536.5 kilometers per hour to go the distance Avis's bill claims she did in the time that she had the car, 68 hours. That's faster than a drag racer, almost as fast as a jet airplane, and much more than the 176 uh, kilometers per hour that the SUV is capable of. And if you're going that fast in a Yukon, trust me, you're filling up. And if she set out to drive around the circumference of the Earth at the equator, she would have made it 91% of the way around the world. (laughs) Yes, she did it. Now, they say it's a computer glitch. I'm guessing it's somebody entering the mileage in wrong. She's still waiting for the refund, though. She did get charged for it as of when that article was published. Might have been updated since then. No, it's actually it's going to take 45 days to get that refunded because they had to do a like a I call my manager in. They were Avis was being difficult, according to her. And so she's she could be waiting up to 45 days to get the refund. Come on. (laughs) 45 days for a refund. Yeah. Do you know how fast it is to refund on a computer in today's world from, I mean, I own online stores. Do you know how long it takes? Any transaction, even the ones where you swipe, you swipe. Oh, it's done now. See, that's how fast it happens. Unless, of course, you have to enter in your PIN number to get the money back. Yeah. Oh, 45 business days, by the way. Oh, so nine weeks. Yeah. (laughs) Or there's a network outage or something, too. That stops it usually. Mm. (sighs) That's incredible. Um, we have so many here. So many of so many options. Um, are you okay with gray hair going gray? Yeah, I actually am. I kind of like the platinum look. I I don't know what that's going to look like on me and how much hair I'll have when I start to go gray. But I, uh, I think, you know, I, I understand like the look has become much more acceptable for most people, but I think noticing that first gray hair is probably going to be quite a like, Oh, moment for me. But I think uh, as, as I've gotten older, I'm more okay with that. And also I just think about if I ever get nervous, I'll just think about Steve Carell and how he's been rocking that since he was in his mid thirties. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah. Well, this is, I feel this is unfair for BK. Uh, yes. Yeah. Wisdom. It's wisdom. I look at my beard. Uh, I can't tell, though, if it's blonde, because my beard is a cornucopia of red, brown, and blonde. So I can't tell if there's any gray in there, because it just all kind of blends together. But I check all the time, and I'll be I'll be fine with a gray beard. I think it'll denote wisdom yeah. and age and the passage of time. My mom calls it Arctic Blonde. Ooh, Her hair is, like, white. Like a- well, it sounds less like gray hair, right? The stigma. And my beard like is very, very white. 
Salt and peppery on top, but very white. That's why I like to grow it in time to uh, volunteer, help the elves at Christmas. Uh, Canadian brands are showing their support uh, for those who decide to embrace their gray hair. And this time it's fast food giant Wendy's that's stepping into the natural aging arena. Wendy's Canada updated its social media profile picture Thursday, swapping out its mascot's recognizable red pigtails for a shade of gray. This story is at globalnews.ca, by the way. Um, because A is a A regardless of hair color, they wrote. Using the hashtags Lisa Laflamme and new profile pic. Wendy's Canada is the latest brand to back former CTV news anchor Lisa Laflamme who made headlines last week if she shared that she had been unceremoniously let go by Bill. And look at the, actually, you, the Shiftheads have posted this to shiftheads.ca in the Facebook group. So you've already posted this earlier in the day today, and it's up there if you do want to see what it looks like. Are you okay with the gray hair? I thought Lisa LaFlamme's hair looks dynamite yeah. with the gray. And one of the things that I think that that trend caused through COVID was an awful lot of people. My sister stopped coloring her hair. I think her hair is so nice now. There's so much depth of color. I, I met a new friend on the weekend. Her name was Heather. And she also was the same, stopped coloring her hair. And there's so much cool color in it. What a trend to just let it go natural. I love it. I think that everybody, look, just let your, if you want to color your hair because you feel like that's your jam, fine, do that. But coloring your hair because you feel like you have to, because you feel like you look old or whatever, the trends have changed. I say let it go. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. 100%. There are people my age who are dyeing their hair silver because they like the look. And yeah. it is a good look, but also just that idea. We have to be more okay as a society, as a society about how we perceive aging. I've always struggled with, uh, you know, companies and procedures to make you look younger, where it's like it doesn't disguise the fact that you are older. You should be okay with being older, and aging beautifully is a is a amazing thing. And uh, we would be a better society if we were all better at doing it but i mean we're bombarded daily with you have to not have gray hair you have to you know have no wrinkles no that's okay man wrinkles are laugh lines man i think it's the stories it's the stories of your life exactly if this world if we could be more authentic in general the whole scope of what age looks like changes you can have uh gray hair and still be fit right you can still be active and filled with vitality and doing those things and that's what changes all of this so i think in the world where everything is so fake oh do i hate fake and you know you're getting injections in your lips and the and the the botox things if you you feel like there's too many wrinkles you want a little bit of botox fine but the thought that it has to be perfect right like i don't judge if you get it but i just find that it usually it looks fake anyway at least this way, it looks natural, and I love it. So I, I think I'm now. I don't get it because you know I'm not a woman and haven't been through that. You get to choose. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm just from this this guy. I think women um, who let their hair go completely natural look so good and authentic, and it's real and sexy and beautiful and all those things. So I say, I say, set it free. But I don't judge if you color it. I just find that, you know, it's crazy. I have a TV friend, not to be named, as uh, she's still on TV. Uh, she literally, in order to be able to continue on TV after she was 45, started saving a cosmetic surgery fund in her 20s so she could afford all of the, the lifts and the shots and the, the, the puffy injections and all the things in, in order to have it all done in her 50s just to be able to stay on TV. And... I'm not drawing any correlation to this story and that story. I'm just saying that that is a personal personal story that was shared to me from a friend who was on TV, that that's what she was planning to do so she could look younger and stay on TV longer. And um, I think wisdom I think wisdom wins. I, I, I don't know. I, I, if I'm going to look at TV, uh, you know, watch TV, watch movies, everything else, when people, the more authentic they look, I don't care if they're wearing a perfect suit. I really don't. I want them to look like themselves and look like real people. And I think that's really great. So I love it. I love it for people at home. I love it for people at work. I love for all of it. So I'm okay with gray hair. That's my vote. High five for you. 
This is the Shift Podcast. Over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed more and more on Twitter, many people posting about lines in the sky, these straight lines that are very visible. You can see them in the photo. It looks like somebody took a ruler and drew a line in the sky. It's caused quite the stir online. Many people have asserted that it is the uh, Elon Musk satellites providing internet as they fly by, but it does raise the question about, well, how much is up there if we can see it so clearly now? John Crisides joins us now to have a conversation. John is professor in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, State of University of New York at Buffalo. And John, you work with NASA. You know all these things. I remember when I was a kid, we'd go to like my parents' ball tournaments and all that stuff, and all the kids would go outside. We'd be either in the back of a truck, like in the bed of a truck, and they'd put down a tarp, and we'd have our sleeping bags, and we would lie there and watch for satellites flying by, shooting stars, all the things that kids look for. It seems like there's an awful lot more to see today. Is that the case? Absolutely, yeah, especially with the Starlink constellation and other constellations that are going to be going up there in the future. So we're going to be able to look at a lot more satellites. So what is it about this stuff that uh, that brings us today? Are we we're literally seeing lines of Internet satellites flying by? That can't be... For you space people, that can't, that can't be good. <laughs> well, I mean, for us, for what I do, it's it's not that big of a problem. One of the unintended consequences, exactly what you said, that you can see them from the ground and starting to cause interference for astronomers. And there's been a simulation that showed, you know, which you got to tens of thousands of these, which is, I think, Musk got permission for about 46,000 satellites, wow. which is more than what we have up there right now. So that might cause some major headaches for astronomers. So I think that that's where it's going. He's doing some, some things to mitigate that by uh, the best word I can use is to make them a little bit more black so they don't radiate as much light, but it's not reduced it enough. So I just basically kind of like headlights in your rear view mirror. We've got reflection of from the sun or whatever on the satellites they look like stars, but they reflect that light back down to Earth. Therefore, you know, the people who are looking into space have more light pollution. Is that simple enough or too simple? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Light pollution is the perfect perfect phrase for it. Wow. Okay, so it is kind of neat when you get to see these things going around. There's been on my airplane spotters group, there's a photographer on there that's been taking photos of the sun, videos of the sun, and then stills from the video of in the middle of the day when the space station goes by. And it goes by really quick, but it's this tiny little, it looks like some sort of tiny little micro nano robot that flies by. Um, And I think that stuff's really cool to be able to see that. So how much stuff are we talking about in space? Because you have this line of space junk that that you work around that you know. But I mean, how many, you said 40,000 more is more than we have uh, today. Like, I guess I always thought there wasn't that many up there, maybe like, 15 <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> sorry but you're not close so the number of satellites that are in space about about nine thousand, wow. and the number that are functioning is over six thousand. wow so quite a bit of them so it's the the space debris is when i talk about space debris it's the stuff that we can actually see so that's about objects that are about 10 centimeters in size and bigger about a softball wow and we track about thirty-one thousand of those objects Really? So that means that about 3,000 satellites are up there and they're dead? There's a number of dead satellites, but uh, when we talk about debris, it's anything that's not useful. Um, some interesting debris. Ed White lost his glove when he did the first spacewalk for us. Um, oh. Golf ball, uh, urine, froze. You, oh. can, you actually saw that from your uh, naked eye. Really? Uh, that's considered debris. Uh, they don't do that anymore. They, don't, they recycle the urine on the space station, but in the old days they didn't. So, yeah, anything that's not useful, we consider that to be space junk. And, and you can get buried in space, too, in a little capsule. Gene Roddenberry did that. Well, this is the thing that I don't understand about this, John, is that if these things are flying around, and I believe the James Webb telescope just got hit by something, and I'm like, these things are pretty light. They're put up there as light as they can be to, to survive, plus not be heavy. 
I mean, the space station must get hit. The space shuttles, when they were up, they must have got hit with junk, didn't they? Or is was it were we just that lucky? Because I'm guessing, like, a bolt flying around that fast. I mean, if a rock can crack my windshield. Yeah, so that's the problem. All, all this stuff's going to 17,500 miles per hour, and that, that actually goes back to Newton. Uh, he wasn't the apple that he discovered gravity. It was actually this problem of trying to figure out how things orbit. Um, so, yeah, he, he actually put an imaginary cannon on top of a can, um, on top of a mountain, shot a cannonball at a certain velocity, hit the ground, and he asked himself an interesting question. How fast do I have to fire this so it never hits the ground? And that's, that's 17,500 miles per hour. So you need to achieve that velocity to get to orbit. Anything slower, Earth's gravity is going to pull it back in. So they're moving very fast. If you want to think, you put a car analogy in there. If you have two cars that are next to each other going at 17,500 miles per hour, that's not a problem. So you can think of two objects in space that are in the same orbit, not a problem. But there's many different orbits. So the worst case scenario is you have one that's going around the equator, one that's going around the poles. That's a T-bone intersection case. So a very small piece of debris can do a lot of damage. Yes, the space station has probably gets hit on a daily basis. The space shuttle, they had to replace the windows every time it came down uh, by very small stuff. There's a, a 100 Whipple shields. Fred Whipple in 1947 invented what's now called the Whipple shield. And it can take some small impacts, and the space station is pretty protected from that. But it had to do, it had to do a number of maneuvers, almost 30 maneuvers in the last 20 years. That's a lot. So, yeah, trying to dodge this stuff can get tricky. Okay, so I imagine air traffic controllers track airplanes. There must be somebody who tracks these things. And um, I didn't know that, I mean, I knew there was more than one orbit, but I guess I didn't connect the dots thinking that they may intersect at some point and there's got to be a calculation somewhere of the uh uh-oh timing. Right. So for us, we have a thing called the Space Surveillance Network that basically tracks all of the telescopes and radars all over the world. And we also cooperate with countries, obviously Europeans, and to try to get an idea of where these objects are. Uh, a lot of times we, we lose them. Um, Apollo 12 upper stage was lost for many years until about the year 2000. And uh, it was thought to be an asteroid or something. And they did a spectral analysis and found out that it had paint on it and figured out that was the upper stage of Apollo 12. So that was lost for many years. That's the other problem is that we do lose many objects. Um, but yeah, uh, the Space Surveillance Network is not very complete in the sense we can't track everything up there. So we have to rely. It's exactly Newton's equation. We, we just so-called we propagate these equations forward to predict where these sat- satellites and debris objects are going to be. And sometimes it's not accurate. The Iridium Cosmos, these are two big, large satellites. They collided. We also we also calculate a probability of collision. There's a lot of math that goes behind that. But anything greater than a 1 in 10,000 chance, we will say, hey, you better do a maneuver. Um, but sometimes they're wrong. Iridium Cosmos, that probability was not reached. And I like to say they won the bad lottery that day, ended up colliding and causing about 500 pieces of debris. Wow. And not to mention whatever services were provided um, also right. lost. Right. Iridium was active. Uh, Cosmos was a defunct weather satellite for the Russians, so that was fine for them, hmm. but not good for us, obviously. Yeah. Well, well what an expensive uh, situation that is. Um, okay. So when we're talking about this, John, there's so much that goes on here. Um, wasn't there just a recent situation where a, a rocket, I think it was a, a SpaceX one or whatever, hit the moon? Um, like this stuff is flying around and it makes me think of, I don't know, walking on the beach, walk on the beach. And then, you know, there's a bunch of garbage that maybe fell off a ship or something like that. It's kind of all washed up in one area of the beach. That's kind of what I feel like space sounds like. It's getting, there's a lot of junk up there. Uh, that's the next big worry. We're putting a lot of things at the moon. Uh, James Webb is actually in orbit closer to the moon than us. Um, because we want to be able to protect it from, a lot of things, but uh, there's some special points out there that it, that are useful. But yeah, I, I always like to say we don't want to take our troubles to the moon or Mars, right? When we start exploring there, um, I really think if we don't do something in 50 years, Kessler, Donald Kessler, in 1978, was a NASA engineer, came up with now what's called the Kessler syndrome, meaning that objects are going to collide, and those objects can collide with other objects, and we're going to have a cascading effect. To the point where you put something in low Earth orbit, 
the chances of getting hit are going to be so great. It's just not worth it. And I think definitely, I always tell when I, when I, when I give lectures to uh, my students and undergrads and, and also high school and lower, that your generation is going to have to solve this problem. Safe to say, if you have two things that are a foot across, they collide, you end up with four things that are six inches across, they collide, and so goes your uh, your math from there. Um, and then all of a sudden, you're at the 200 small things that just become a real pain in the ass for anybody. Absolutely. And, and so a lot of stuff that we can't see is the stuff we're very worried about. It's estimated there's a million objects between one centimeter and 10 centimeters. Wow. And actually about 130 is estimated between one millimeter and one centimeter. Really? So that's a lot of objects. I'm most worried about astronauts in space because they're very exposed. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they got nothing. It's not like they have a suit of armor on. They've just got their suit. Right. Huh. That's it. Yes. I mean, that could even hit their, their lanyard, right? That um, that ties them down. I mean, even that would be problematic. Like, whew. see, these are the things you don't yeah, think about. Yeah, a lot of problems. And um, astronauts did have to uh, take go go into the escape hatch a couple times because a debris came within a thousand feet. Hmm. Uh, when the Russians did their what's called an ASAT, um, which is a missile hitting a satellite. And actually a piece of that debris field came close to the space station. There were two cosmonauts on board. Uh, so countries doing it. The Chinese did this too and caused about um, 2,000 pieces of space debris. Most of that's still up there. The Russians was a little bit less. India did a much con- much more controlled one. Uh, much, But come on, let's not blow up satellites with missiles in space. We, we shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, okay, so that, that that all makes total sense. I'm guessing it because it's it's not close enough where gravity will pull it into burn up, but at the same time, it is close enough that it stays, you know, dancing around Earth. Is that safe? Yeah, eventually it's all going to come down, but some of it could take 100 years. Okay. Okay, so you do a bunch of work, and this is the part that gets me, is the services part. I mean, there is work around weather communications and the basics, right? Let alone the military stuff. The weather, the communications, the basics. How do how, is there even a way to protect all of those things? I mean, we just found out here in Canada one of the biggest players of telecom in the form of mobility, and in they're a massive internet provider on the eastern half of Canada. Well, they had a breakdown similar. It's reported to be similar to what Facebook went through a bunch of months ago when Facebook and Instagram and everything went down, and. They service, of course, some of the interact uh, transactions to pay with your debit cards, credit cards, all of those things. And there's all kinds of business affected when that one mobility provider went down. And so in the future of things like warfare, cyber warfare, all of this stuff, we can mitigate bad guys doing bad things in a lot of ways, but you, if you lose communications, if you lose GPS even, if you lose weather satellites, all of the things that really matter to us in day-to-day basics to junk, that sounds problematic to me. Is there anything we can do about that? Well, the problem is there's, there's actually been a lot of solutions proposed and most of them, and, and Europeans are going to do an experiment where they're going to grab a piece, a satellite. Um, but anything that requires us to grab it, it's not as easy. I live in Buffalo. I can drive to Washington, D.C. and I take a gas and get some more gas, go to Carolina and go somewhere else. You can't do that in space. Uh, you're fighting Newton, Kepler, and you're going to lose every time. So an example is, let's say I go grab a piece of space debris, and I just want to do a 10-degree change to go grab another piece. That's going to take up another 50% of my fuel. So if you want to build a multi-million dollar satellite that can maybe grab a couple pieces of space debris, it's not feasible at this point. So we have to look at what is feasible. And most obvious one is try not to put more space. Like United Nations, they put out a document back in 2010. And yeah, these, these countries that are blowing up their own satellites to prove that they can, obviously violating that. Um, so... My problem is we can't do the simple stuff. How are we going to solve the hard stuff? So I'm I'm looking at it from a different perspective. I'm looking at methods to be able to 
better track this stuff, better ha- have better models of where they're going to go, get better predictions. So you can get a better idea of that probability collision um, and hopefully not put as much stuff up there, be able to track it better. And then as the technology catches up to be able to really start to take this stuff out, I think it's our best hope. Um, I like to say I'm optimistic, but I'm also a realist. I just don't see that happening right now. A warfare would be the ultimate one, right? When they literally start blowing up everybody else's satellites all at once in order to some sort of warfare thing. And then there's this massive tsunami of new junk is maybe you lose 10 satellites this week in some sort of retribution thing. I mean, then it just becomes astronomical. Yeah. It's not so much the, let's call it kinetic kill where you wipe out a satellite by using a missile or something. Uh, Our, our set, our satellites are attacked every day. Um, They're more annoyance type stuff. Um, That's all I can say about that, but it is something that at our country and, and, Canada, obviously, as well, too, and the Europeans take very seriously. And it's space is the next war domain. It's just we have to deal with that. It's no chance you can invent a little Roomba or something, eh, that just kind of just goes around on its own and bumps into the wall, turns around and sucks up all the junk. I wish it was that simple. Yeah, but <laughs> a little space vacuum. That darn, yeah, that darn Newton and Kepler, they, they keep getting in the way. Oh, man, gravity. <laughs> you, can't, you can't overcome the math. Yeah, hey, so that's amazing. So if that math is 17,000 kilometers per hour is um, is the math, would they do the low orbit things? Does that supply the same when they, I'm assuming, is there a difference between you go straight up versus when you kind of just ascend? Or is it all the same? Well, you have to ascend to that velocity. Um, I'm sorry, the U.S. is something thousand five hundred miles per hour. So you have to do the math to figure oh, out miles per hour, yeah. per hour. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's that's why you need those big rockets to be able to achieve that achieve that, that velocity. Fast. Yeah. Wow, that's fast. that's why you can't just ride a plane into space because gravity is going to pull you back down. No so matter what. That's why we get those big rockets. And well, yeah, okay, and that would make sense because less air means less lift, and so on and so forth. And that's why you just need like flat out horsepower to push you through. Does that? Add up. I'm so out of my right, line well, here, John. Like you have to yeah, understand. There's, there's, I'm trying to remember no, grade no twelve science. I mean, that, that's fine. I mean, the, uh, yeah. Well, we we don't have air in space, obviously. There, there's still air molecules in low Earth orbit, and that's enough to cause drag. And the space station gets a lot of drag on it. Um, not enough, obviously, not enough the air to breathe, but uh, enough to cause this drag effect. And we just don't know that effect really well. That's what's causing these issues. We can do some modeling, and that's what's pushing these satellites around where we and we we don't get a good look at them we have to predict where they're going to go and we just don't know that, that drag that well so there's i always like to say the smallest little effect that we can't feel in space can have a huge effect in space so an example of that is gravity uh gravity is actually not uniform and that's directly related to einstein who says the more mass you have the more gravity you're going to have the earth actually bulges out at the equator so the gravity at the equator is different than it is at the poles. Now, if I were to, and you and I stand on the equator and poles, we wouldn't be able to tell that difference. But that little effect moves those satellites around a lot. Uh, so every little effect can have a big effect on the satellite eventually. Uh, so, so these are the things that cause us a lot of headaches and we have to deal with them. Well, I know you do work with NASA and the Air Force, so I don't know if you can even answer this question. So feel free to decline if that's the right answer. We have private companies now going to space you know when you've got spacex going up there how are these companies doing in contributing to this problem are they putting more junk up there is it more of a kind of like a highway there's just more people on the highway therefore there's more garbage or are these companies doing a good job trying to mitigate this problem as they go well i it's really not up to the companies they 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 file with the government and the government gives them their slot um, so, you know, Starlink, they got their slots and that's all fine. So, uh, but I, I, I believe that Starlink has the capability to do some maneuvers to get away from debris in space. Uh, so that's a good thing. The, um, there's other things that we require. So I, I'm building satellites in my lab at the university and they're CubeSat small, about the sh- size of a shoebox. Uh, we have to show that drag that I talked about. We have to show that within 25 years, that's going to come back because we don't have any thrusting capability on that. The other thing that we do, Canadians and, and Europeans and other nations do, unfortunately, the Russia and China don't do, is any satellite that has thrust 
on it, we're going to promise that we're going to do an intentional deorbit of that over the Pacific Ocean, just in case something gets through. And what, so that the chances of somebody being hurt on the ground are going to be extremely small to none. So we, we try to do that type of control so we just don't put more stuff up there. But obviously, you know, with China and Russia, China with their upper stage, done it a few times, um, just having basically a free fall volley coming in, you know, that type of stuff we don't want happening either. Yeah, again, that's that whole winning the wrong bingo lottery, you right? Um, that's not good for anybody. Uh, okay, so you're in Buffalo. Uh, I used to live in St. Catharines, so uh, the Walden Galleria was one of my favorite places to go. I love that place. Um, and so I feel like you're like Canadian adjacent, like honorary. So what are your thoughts, you know, with uh, American space, the Canadians? Um, how is Canada doing? We hear that we contribute well. Uh, is Canada doing a good job at being part of this whole space conversation other than our ability to make amazing arms? Yes, actually, when I, when I worked in NASA, we... we uh we went to the Canadian Space Agency in Montreal a few times. I, I went, uh, but a number of times to work on their first mission was called RadarSat, um, and it did great science. Um, the Canadians are great. They were very smart, um, and they know what they were doing. Um, I'm more of a Canadian fan than you can imagine because I am a huge Rush fan. <laughs> so, <laughs> as we know, Neil Peart is from St. Catharines. Just right so, close by. Fan by proximity. Yep. You've been to um, Port. So, yeah, you've been to Port Luzi then, and down all that. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the Canadians have been great. The Europeans have been great. It's it's you know the bad actors we know. They're, they're Russia and China mm-hmm. are the biggest ones. Always causing the problems. I would love to get more in this conversation, John, and learn more about this stuff because uh, your education, your experience, and all that is so second nature and comfortable. And I think it's just it's the things that we don't hear. So I really appreciate you being here and sharing time with us, and and look really look forward to learning some more. My pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. What are we going to do to have some fun here to kick this off since it is the end of the week? We are going to do this little segment that we like to call Throwback Thursday and Flashback Friday because it kind of affects everybody no matter where they are. So we've been playing a little musical breadcrumb for you as we flash back to DJ BK. What year? Going back to the year that was in 1991. Question for you, 877-399-9898. I want you to text me two things. Well, maybe your name, three things. Text me your name. How old were you in 1991? Where did you live? 877-399-9898. How old were you? What's your name? Where did you live? Text it in. We want to know. We're going to shout you out, too. So get it in there. Why are we throwing back to 1991? Well, two days ago, Ukraine celebrated their Independence Day. Subdued this year, but probably more important than all of them, except for maybe 2014 and 1991. 1991 is the year when Ukraine succeeded from the USSR. It's Throwback Thursday, Flashback Friday. So welcome to the news. Yeah, sultry. You know that's why I, I, I when I was a child, I, I I never watched global news because I thought it was for adults because of that music. Oh, yeah. very good. Yeah. Um, these are the throwbacks of our lives. I feel like that's. Can you play it again? These are the throwbacks of our lives. Late night radio, all across Canada. Kenny G right there. Yeah, it is. It's cool. Uh, August 24th, 1991, Ukraine declared independence from the USSR. Here's a report on that day from ITV News. Today's session of the Supreme Soviet had been called by the leaders of last week's coup. Mr. Gorbachev promised that after a new union treaty was signed, there'd be immediate negotiations with republics which want independence. But the Union is now breaking up without him. This pro-independence rally in the Ukraine was just another example of the mood of separatism sweeping the nation. 
Local officials in the capital, Kiev, stormed the Communist Party headquarters, requisitioning documents and sealing offices. Party activity has been suspended. Mr. Gorbachev now seems unable to prevent that collapse. His union treaty is looking increasingly irrelevant. Most republics opting for direct agreements, free of central control. Okay, so it's been a long time. How far they've come. And there's a reason why we wanted to draw attention to this. I'll explain that in a little bit. We're going to have fun with the 1991, too. It's not going to be all this heavy news, but there is a real opportunity for us here. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine regained independence and declared itself neutral, forming a military partnership with the post-Soviet Commonwealth of the Independent States, while also joining the Partnership for Peace with NATO in 1994. 1991 was so incredibly important, right, because of the fact that that's when Ukraine as we know it became Ukraine. So when we listen to these guests that we have that join us, our friends here of the shift that are in Kiev, that are in Lviv, that are in Odessa, that are in Istanbul, and tell us all of these things from around the Black Sea and what Ukraine's going through. Think about this. This place has really been a country as we know it for 31 years. 31 years ago, what were we doing? They were starting a new country. So that generation, they have built that whole country. We weren't doing that. We were doing completely different things. And so let's take a little look back at where we were while Ukrainians were building a new country. What were we up to? Some contrast for you as well. Pretty important year in Canada. We got a new tax. The GST came into effect that year. And at first, I would say still kind of really Everybody's still not really happy about it. But at first, Canadians were really not happy. Dozens of stores are absorbing the new tax. Some want to improve lagging sales. We're paying the GST on behalf of the customers as a break-in period or a transition period to help them adjust to the paying of the taxes. Others need the time to adjust their cash registers and their price tags. We still don't know what the manufacturers are going to do and what their new price lists are going to be like. We bought assuming that this wasn't going to happen. But some consumers say that's not enough. It's not fair to let the stores take on the tax burden. They say they didn't want the GST in the beginning, and they say we should still fight. Mildred Miller has her protest all worked out. I'm going to put up my hand and I'm going to say, I curse the GST and I curse all the people that put it through and I curse the provincial government for adding the tax on top of it. And I hope other people will do the same. Uh, Because mainly, this is to keep reminding us and everybody else that we must not forget it. Miller says everyone should hold their own GST revolt. She suggests buying vinegar instead of cleaning supplies because groceries aren't taxed, but cleaners are. And bartering for services, like a haircut in return for babysitting. There have been all kinds of different uh, things that have changed with the GST. Hygiene products, for example, some were taxed, some weren't. The original rate was 7%. And look, the one thing Canadians, you always have to remember when the government says, by the way, it's a new tax. It's only going to be for a little while once we get back on our feet. Well, government since 2015 is like 25% bigger with this current government. And in 2017, 2018, the GST raised 11.7% of the total amount of money. But that was when it dropped from 7% down to 5%. So this is, um, it, it's going to be here. Now, the catch with the GST is not so much the GST at 5%. 5% is an easy number. When you look at taxes around the world, 5% is not terrible. It's the, the 5% plus the provincial, and then you get the HST, and then the confusion with all of that, and the 13%. BK, do you notice it in BC when you have the taxes? Like, Is it something that you budget for all the time? Because it seems like a big number to me. Yeah, I guess, especially when I first arrived here, but because I haven't really been anywhere else in Canada very much over the last few years, I'm just, yeah, I'm just kind of used to the level that it's at here for me uh, because I haven't experienced Mm. it any other way. A a couple of years ago, 
shopping. We were shopping back to school or Christmas or something with Mel. And we were here and went and bought some stuff and we walked down the store. And the conversation was, I think they forgot to ring something in. I think we got a deal. I was like, no, no, you just paid 8% less tax, actually. Um, and that adds up, right? I mean, on $300, it starts to, that makes a big difference in all the buying. So now what's going to happen? Well, there is always conversations about those taxes changing, but 1991, thank you, GST. Also in 1991, let me go back. Where were you in 1991? Where did you live in Canada or around the world? How old were you and what's your name? Text it in 877-399-9898. Also in 1991, a very iconic Canadian TV show was canceled. On Degrassi, Christmas is a time of friends. Hey, wheels. Merry Christmas, guys. A time of giving. Oh, right. A calculator. We're counting your money. And a time of sharing. Can I hold it? Okay. It's Christmas on Degrassi Monday. Christmas. Wheels and Snake and Spike. Joey Jeremiah. Joey Jeremiah with his fedora. <laughs> that was good. I uh, I forgot about Joey. The uh, was the main guy. He was the I know, but central I like, character. I mean, I, Him and Caitlin. I like Spike's big hair. Caitlin. <laughs> and he was like, will, will they or won't they? Joey and Caitlin. And Snake, Snake became the teacher. Yeah. Well, that was on the next gen. I never watched that. I was too old at that point. <laughs> the series follows the same Toronto-based ensemble cast from the previous series, now having, uh, which was Degrassi Junior High, now graduating to high school as they face most of the same issues as the old show, except with the addition of more convert controversial and extreme issues and challenges, including abortion, cancer, suicide, death, and AIDS. It also tackled things like pregnancy and all of that stuff. Uh, it was a great show. The show made way for Degrassi, The Next Generation, which was the one that had a singer that you might recognize by the name of Drake. But while one show ended in 1991 in the form of Degrassi, we as Canadians were given the beautiful gift of another show that launched in 1991 called The Red Green Show. Thank you, Harold. And a uh, special uh, thank you to our viewers uh, for bucking the trend. And you know, which Harold, uh, come on over here a minute. Uh, Harold is uh, producer, director, and my nephew uh, on the show. And uh, he's got this little machine here, and he's able to really keep things moving along for us. It's a video effect machine. It goes like this. <laughs> that way it can bail out of a boring segment into a more interesting one, you know, if, if the need should arise. Which I'm sure it does. <laughs> so, uh, Steve Smith is a friend of the shift. We've actually had him on before. Really cool from his place in Florida. He still is around Southern Ontario, Niagara, Hamilton region, and uh, down in Florida in the winter, which is kind of cool. It was so great to talk to him. If you go back on our list of podcasts, you'll find him there. The Red Green Show is essentially a cross between a sitcom and a sketch comedy series and a parody of home improvement, do-it-yourself, fishing, and other outdoor shows. My dad still quotes Red Green. During the show's run, Red Green Show was nominated for 23 Gemini Awards, but only won once in 1998. If you can't be handsome, you might as well be handy. I think that's what it was. It's true. God, Red Green. One of the, uh, you ever wonder what people from other countries watched Red Green and went, what are Canadians smoking? Streamed in the States. So it was pretty hmm. popular there too. So they, they, they at least have that. But I, I just remember being on, if I remember correctly, I'd be watching like History Channel and then it would, something would end and then Red Green would be on in between. And I had no idea what it was, but I, couldn't really stop watching it when it came on even as a child i had no idea what was going on but yeah it's great it's a classic hmm. movies in 1991 meh not the greatest but there was one that ryan got really excited about because it has keanu reeves so why not patrick swayze surfboards and it's point break the ex-presidents are surfers you're trying to tell me the fbi is going to pay me to learn to surf Fear causes hesitation. Hesitation will cause your worst fears to come true. Wow. Dun, 
Point Break opened to a generally positive critical reception, and critics praised the relationship between Reeves and Swayze. During its theatrical run, the film grossed over $83.5 million and has uh, since gained a cult following on the show. Keanu Reeves was cool. Great movie. Was it? I, I don't even know if I've ever Point seen Break it, is to be awesome. honest. Yeah, Point Break really? holds up really well, actually. It's it's very, hmm. you know, it, it's outside the box. It feels original for a bank heist movie, which is a difficult thing to do. And it's fun. It, it doesn't it, t- it doesn't take itself too seriously. I, I definitely think it's worth a rewatch. You know, it's not a masterpiece, but it's definitely like a good cult classic action th- thriller. And Keanu Reeves and, and Patrick Swayze. I mean, like, come on. There was another... Uh, TV show that kicked off that became the voice of musical voice of a generation. Turns out he's a friend of the shift. Uh, he's been, I'm lucky question mark to say he's been my friend. I think since 1996. when we first met in downtown Toronto. And, uh, at the time he was very popular and his name is Tarzan Dan. Tarzan Dan was on the TV show. Why TV's hit list, which has speaking of a cult following online, and shaped the careers of many, many, many artists for a very long time. Boy bands and Britney Spears and all of those. Tarzan Dan's hit list on YTV kicked off in 1991. Hi, Tarzan Dan. Yo, 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 what do you know? We got TV's hype. It's video show. Fresh it in the flesh. The best videos a week to make you freak. It's a hit list. Mm-hmm. I'll be eyeballing for you on the hit list. Choose the best. Forget the rest. Saturdays at 6. On YTV. He sounds exactly the same today, by the way. Yeah, he does. And in, per- and in personal life, <laughs> if you ever go for lunch with him, he sounds exactly like that as well. So yes, why did Tarzan Dan wear a hat on the TV show? Well, he's been bald forever. And he started radio, I think, when he was 16. He was young. And uh, he was bald. And it wasn't cool to be bald then. So they put a hat on him. So very cool stuff. The first six seasons of The Hit List were hosted by Tarzan Dan Freeman. So as the Hit List, uh, the CDs also were part of his creation. The All those YTV Hit List CDs that were out. Um, mm-hmm. Two compilation CDs, YTV and MCA, 1994, 1996, pop, rap, hip-hop, dance, all of that stuff. Some of the celebs that showed up on the show, and I know that they're still friends today, Weird Al Yankovic, Backstreet Boys, Christina Aguilera, Sync, Take That, Smashing Pumpkins, Spice Girls, uh, five, no doubt, Britney Spears, Alanis Morissette. I texted Dan today. I believe he was off work and he had company. So I was like, hey, you want to come on the show tonight? He's like, oh, my God, company. I'm so sorry. And I'm pretty sure they were on the lake. So um, he lives just outside, uh, just outside Calgary. And um, and that, you know what being on the lake means. Glug, glug, glug. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know if he's drinking. I've just totally thrown him under the bus just for fun. Okay, what about toys? Uh, you can catch him on Q107 in Calgary, by the way, if you uh, still want to hear Tarzan Dan. He does the rock radio. What about toys? What were kids playing with in 1991? Well, Super Nintendo was by far the best-selling toy of the year. Other games, not as high-tech as this. G.I. Joes were still incredibly uh, strong and popular. General Hawk's got something to say. New G.I. Joe talking battle commanders. Each says three different battle commands. And an all-new combat sound. There's Stalker. Cobra Commander. Overkill. And General Hawk. G.I. Joe talking battle commanders, each sold separately. G.I. Joe 1991, and a great clarification from Catherine. If the women do not find you handsome, at least they will find you handy from the Red Green Show. Perfect. Music in 1991 was a really weird transition time from the new popification of hip-hop 
into you know the late 90s where you had raw bass dj easy rock and then dance with snap the power and all of those that led into one of the biggest songs of all time that you still hear at hockey games and cnc music factory and somehow this still makes everybody groove you know makes you want to dance uh, another one was color me bad and this sample has been used a ton of times the song really hasn't stood up the test of time quite the same as cnc has but that takes you back though if you're awake back then where were you in 1991 what were you up to and where were you living? 877-399-9898. Langley in 1991 from Catherine. Had my own company prepping homes for sale. Um, I was 100 years old raising two kids. <laughs> I love that. 1991, I was 24 living in Terrace, BC, driving for Dairyland Foods from Trucker Kevin. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.